Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. Happy New Year. It is the year 2022, and we are starting a new book called Saved by the Sea, a lighthouse story by Mrs. O.F. Walton, with permission of Forgotten Books. And we are now reading Chapter 1, My Strange Home. It was a strange day the day I was born. The waves were beating against the lighthouse, and the wind was roaring and raging against everything. Had not the lighthouse been built very firmly into a strong, solid rock, it and all within it must have been swept into the deep, wild sea. It was a terrible storm. My grandfather said he'd never seen such a storm since he came to live on the island more than 40 years before. Many ships went down in the storm that day. Many lives were lost. But in the very midst of it, when the wind was the highest and the waves were the strongest, and when the foam and the spray had completely covered the lighthouse windows, I, Alec Ferguson, was born. I was born on a strange day, and I was born into a strange home. The lighthouse stood on an island four miles distance from any land. The island was not very large. If you stood in the middle of it, you could see the sea all around you. That sea, which was sometimes so blue and peaceful, and at other times was as black as ink, and roaring and thundering on the rocky shores of the little island. At one side of the island, on a steep rock overhanging the sea, stood the lighthouse. Night by night, as soon as it began to grow dark, the lighthouse lamps were lighted. I can remember how I used to admire those lights as a child. I would sit for hours watching them revolve and change in color. First there was a white light, then a blue one, then a red one, then a green one, and then a white light again. And as the ships went by, they always kept a lookout for our friendly lights and avoided the rocks of which they warned them. My grandfather, old Sandy Ferguson, was one of the lighthouse men whose duty is always to keep those lamps in order and to light them every night. He was a clever, active old man and did his work well and cheerfully. His great desire was to be able to hold on to his post until I should be able to take his place. At the time when my story begins, I was nearly 12 years old and daily growing taller and stronger. My grandfather was very proud of me and said I should soon be a young man and then he should get me appointed to his place to look after the lighthouse. I was very fond of my strange home and would not have changed it for any other. Many people would have thought it were dull, for we seldom saw a strange face, and the lighthouse men were only allowed to go ashore for a few hours once every two months. But I was very happy, and I thought there was no place in the world like our little island. Close to the tower of the White House was the house in which I and my grandfather lived. It was not a large house, but it was a very pleasant one. All the windows looked out over the sea, and plenty of sharp sea air came in whenever they were opened. All the furniture in the house belonged to the lighthouse, and had been there long before my grandfather came to live there. Our cups and saucers and plates had the name of the lighthouse on them in large gilded letters, and a little picture of the lighthouse with the waves dashing round it. I used to think them very pretty when I was a boy. We had not many neighbors. There was only one other house on the island. It was built on the other side of the lighthouse tower. The house belonged to Mr. Miller. He shared the care of the lighthouse with my grandfather, and just outside the two houses was a court with a pump in the middle from which we got our water. There was a high wall all around this court to make a little shelter for us from the stormy wind. Beyond this court were two gardens, divided by an iron railing. 
The Mellor's garden was very untidy and forlorn and filled with nestles and thistles and groundsland and all kinds of weeds, for Mr. Mellor did not care for gardening, and Mrs. Mellor had six children and had no time to look after it. But our garden was the admiration of everyone who visited the island. My grandfather and I were at work in it every fine day and took pride in keeping it as neat as possible. Although it was so near the sea, our garden produced the most beautiful vegetables and fruit, and the borders were filled with flowers and cabbage roses and pansies and wallflowers and many other hardy plants which were not afraid of the sea air. Outside the garden was a good-sized field, full of small hillocks over which the wild rabbits and hares with which the island abounded were continually scampering. In this field were kept a cow and two goats to supply the two families with milk and butter. Beyond it was a rocky shore and a little pier built out into the sea, the landing stage. On this pier, I used to stand every Monday morning to watch for the steamer which called at the island once a week. It was a great event to us when the steamer came. My grandfather and I and Mr. and Mrs. Mellor and the children all came down to the shore to welcome it. This steamer brought our provisions for the week from a town some miles off and often brought a letter from Mr. Miller, our newspaper, for my grandfather. My grandfather did not get many letters, but there were not many people he knew. He lived on that lonely island the greater part of his life and had been quite shut out from the world. All his relations were dead now, except my father. And what had become of him we did not know. I'd never seen him, for he went away some time before I was born. My father was a sailor, a fine, tall, strong young fellow, my grandfather used to say. He had brought my mother to the island and left her in my grandfather's care whilst he went on a voyage to Australia. He went from the island in that same little steamer which called every Monday morning. My grandfather stood at the end of the pier as the steamer went out of sight, and my mother waved her handkerchief to him as long as any smoke was seen on the horizon. My grandfather has often told me how young and pretty she looked on that summer morning. My father had promised to write soon, but no letter ever came. Mother went down to the pier every Monday morning for three long years. But after a time, her step became slower and her face paler, and at last she was too weak to go down to the rocks to the pier when the steamer arrived on Monday morning. And soon after this, I was left motherless. From that day, the day on which my mother died, my grandfather became both father and mother to me. There was nothing he would not have done for me, and wherever he went, wherever he did, I was always by his side. As I grew older, he taught me to read and write, for there was, of course, no school which I could attend. I also learned to help him to trim the lamps and to work in the garden. Our life went on very evenly from day to day until I was about 12 years old. I used to wish sometimes that something new would happen to make a little change on the island, and at last a change came. Chapter 2 the flare at sea. My grandfather and I were sitting at tea one dark November evening. We'd been digging in the garden the whole morning, but in the afternoon it had been become so wet and stormy that we had remained indoors. We were sitting quietly at our tea, planning what we would do the next day, when the door suddenly opened and Mr. Mellors put his head in. Sandy, quick, he said, look here. My grandfather and I ran to the door and looked out over the sea. And there, about three miles to the north of us, we saw a bright flare of light. It blazed up for a moment or two, lighting up the, the wild and stormy sky, and then it went out, and all was darkness again. What is it, Grandfather? I asked, but he did not answer me. There's no time to lose, Jim, he said. Out with the boat, my man. 
It's an awful sea, said Miller, looking at the waves beating fiercely against the rocks. Never mind, Jim, said my grandfather. We must do our best. So the two men went down to the shore, and I followed them. What is it, grandfather? I asked again. There's something wrong out there, he said, pointing to the place where we'd seen the light. That's the flare they always make when they're in danger and want help at once. Are you going to them, grandfather, I said. Yes, if we can get the boat out, he said. Now, Jim, are you ready? Let me go with you, grandfather, I said. I might be able to help. All right, my lad, he said. We'll try if we can get her out. I can see that scene in my mind's eye as though it were but yesterday. My grandfather, Mr. Miller, straining every nerve to row the boat from land, whilst I clung to the one of the seats and tried in vain to steer her. I can see poor Mrs. Miller standing in the pier, with her shawl over her head, watching us and the two little girls clinging to her dress. I can see the waves which seem to be rising higher every moment and trying to beat our little boat to pieces. And I can see my grandfather's disappointed face as after many fruitless attempts he was obliged to give it up. It's no use, I'm afraid, Jim, he said at last. We haven't hands enough to manage her. So we got to the shore as best we could and paced up and down the little pier. We could see nothing more. It was a very dark night and all was perfect blackness over the sea. The lighthouse lamps had been burning brightly. They had been lighted more than two hours before. It was Mellor's turn to watch, so he went up to the tower, and my grandfather and I remained on the pier. Can nothing be done, grandfather? I'm afraid not, my lad. We can't make any way against such a sea as this. If it goes down a bit, we'll have another try at it. But the sea did not go down. We walked up and down the pier almost in silence. Presently, a rocket shot up in the sky, evidently from the same place we had seen the flare. There she is again, Alec. Poor things. I wonder how many of them there are. Can we do nothing at all, I asked again. No, my lad, he said. The sea's too much for us. It's a terrible night. It puts me in mind of the day you were born. So the night wore away, and we never thought of going to bed. We walked up and down the pier with our eyes fixed on the place where we'd seen the lights. Every now and then, for some hours, rockets were sent up, and then they ceased, and we saw nothing. They've got no more with them, said the grandfather. Poor things. It's a terrible bad job. What's wrong with them, grandfather asked. Are there rocks over there? Yes, there's the Ainsley Craig over there. It's a nasty place, that. A very nasty place. Many a fine ship has been lost there. At last the day began to dawn and a faint gray light spread over the sea. We could distinguish now the mask of a ship in the far distance. There she is, poor thing, said my grandfather, pointing to the distance of the ship. She's close on the Ainsley Craig. I thought so. The wind's gone down a bit now, hasn't it, I asked. Yes, and the sea's a bit stiller just now, he said. Give Jim a call, Alec. Jim Miller hastened down to the pier with his arms full of rope. All right, Jim, my lad, said my grandfather. Let's be off. I think we can manage it now. So he jumped into the boat, put out from the pier. It was a fearful struggle with the wind and waves, and for a long time we seemed to make no way against them. Both the men were much exhausted, and Jim Miller seemed ready to give in. Cheer up, Jim, my lad, said my grandfather. Think of all the poor fellows out there. Let's have one more try. So they made a mighty effort, and the pier was left a little way behind. Slowly, very slowly, we made that distance greater. Slowly, very slowly, Mrs. Miller, who was standing on the shore, faded from our sight. Yet the waves were fearfully strong and appeared ready every moment to swallow up our little boat. Would my grandfather and Miller be able to hold on until they reached the ship, which was still more than two miles away? 
What's that? I cried as I caught sight of the dark object rising and falling with the waves. It's a boat. Surely, said my grandfather. Look, Jim. Chapter 3. The Bundle Saved. It was a boat of which I'd caught sight. A bottom boat upwards. A minute afterwards, it swept close past us, so near that we could almost touch it. They've lost their boat. Pull away, Jim. Oh, Grandfather said, and the wind was so high, I could only make him hear by shouting, Grandfather, do you think the boat was full? No, he said, I think they've tried to put her off and she's been swept away. Keep up, Jim, for Jim Mellor, who had not been a strong man, seemed ready to give in. We were now considerably more than halfway between the boat and the ship. It seemed as if those on board had caught sight of us, for another rocket went up. They had evidently kept one back as last hope in case anyone should pass by. As we drew near, we could see that it was a large ship, and we could distinguish many forms moving about on deck. Poor fellows, poor fellows, said my grandfather. Pull away, Jim. Nearer and nearer we came to the ship, till at length we could see her quite distinctly. She had struck the Ainsley Craig, and her stern was underwater, and the waves were beating wildly on her deck. We could see the men clinging to the rigging, which remained, and holding on to the broken mask of the ship. I shall never forget that sight to my dying day. My grandfather and Jim Mellor saw it, and they pulled in desperately. And now we were so near the vessel that if it had not been for the storm which was raging, we would have spoken to those on board. Again and again we tried to come alongside that shattered ship, but were swept away by the rush of the strong, resistless waves. Several of the sailors came to the side of the ship and threw a rope out to us. It was long before we could catch it, but at last we were being carried past it, and we clutched it. My grandfather immediately made it secure. Now he cried, Steady, Jim, we shall save some of them yet, and he pulled the boat as near as possible to the ship. Oh, how my heart beat that moment as I looked at the men and the women, all crowding towards the place where the rope was fastened. We can't take them all, said my grandfather anxiously. We must cut the rope when we've got as many as the boat will carry. I shuddered as I thought of who would be left behind. We had now come so close to the ship that the men on the board would be able to watch their opportunity and jump into the boat whenever a great wave was passed. And then there was a lull for a moment in the storm. Look out, Jim, cried my grandfather. Here's the first. The man was standing by the rope, which would appear to be a bundle in his arms. The moment we came near, he seized his opportunity and he threw it to us. My grandfather caught it. It's a child, Alec, he said. Put it down by you. I put the bundle at my feet. My grandfather cried. Now another. Quick, my lads. But at that moment, Jim Mellor seized his arm. Sandy, look out. He almost shrieked. The grandfather turned around, and a mighty wave, bigger than any I had seen before, was coming towards us. In another moment, we should have been dashed by its violence against the ship, and all would have perished. My grandfather hesitantly let the rope go, and we just got out of the way of the ship before the waves reached us. And then came a noise, loud as a terrible thunderclap, as the mighty wave dashed against the Ainsley Craig. I could hardly breathe. So dreadful was the moment. Now back again for some more, cried my grandfather when the wave had passed. We looked around, but the ship was gone. It had disappeared like a dream when someone wakes, as if it had never been. That mighty wave had broken its back and shattered into a thousand fragments. Nothing was to be seen on the ship or its crew but a few floating pieces of timber. My grandfather and Millar pulled hastily to the spot, but it was some time before we could reach it, where we had been carried by the sea almost a mile away, and the storm seemed to be increasing in violence. When at last we reached that terrible Ansley Craig, we were too late to save a single life. 
we could not find one of those on board. The greater number, no doubt, had been carried down into vortex made by the sinking ship, and the rest had risen and sunk again long before we reached them. For some time we battled with the waves, unwilling to relinquish any hope of saving some of them, but we found at last that there was no use. We were obliged to return. All had perished, except the child laying at my feet. I stooped down to it and could hear that it was crying, but it was so tightly tied up in a blanket that I could not see nor release it. We had to strain every nerve to reach the lighthouse. It had not been so hard returning as going, for the wind was in our favor, but the sea was very strong and we were often in great danger. I kept my eyes fixed on the lighthouse lamps and steered the boat as straight as I could. Oh, how thankful we were to see those friendly lights growing nearer. And at last the pier came in sight, and Mrs. Mellor stood standing there watching us. Have you got none of them, she said, as we came up the steps? Nothing but a child, said my grandfather sadly. Only one small child, that's all. Well, we did our very best, Jim, my lad. Jim was following my grandfather with the oars over his shoulder. I came at last with a little bundle in my arms. The child had stopped crying now and seemed to be asleep, but it was still so still. Mrs. Miller wanted to take it from me and to undo the blanket, but my grandfather said, Bide your time, Mary. Bring the child into the house, my lass. It's bitter cold out here. So we all went up into the field and through our garden in the court. The blanket was tightly fastened around the child except at the top, where the room had been left for it to breathe, and I could just see a little nose and two closed eyes as I peeked into the opening. The bundle was a good weight, and before I reached the house, I was glad of Mrs. Miller's help to carry it. We came into our little kitchen, and Mrs. Miller took the child on her knee and unfastened the blanket. Bless her, she said, as her tears fell fast. It's a little girl. Ah, said my grandfather, so it is. It's a bonny wee lassie. Chapter 4. Little Tempy. I do not think I've ever seen a prettier face than the child's. She had light brown hair and round rosy cheeks and the bluest of blue eyes. She woke as we were looking at her, and seeing herself among strangers, she cried bitterly. Poor little thing, said Mrs. Miller. She wants her mother. Mama, Mama, cried the little girl as she caught the word. Mrs. Miller fairly broke down at this and sobbed and cried as much as the child. Come, my lass, said her husband. Cheer up. They'll make her worse if he takes on so. But Mrs. Miller could do nothing but cry. Just think if it was our Polly, was all that she could say. Oh, Jim, just think, if it was our Polly that was calling for me. My grandfather took the child from her and put her on my knee. Now, Mary, he said, get us a bit of fire and something to eat. There's a good woman. The child's cold and hungered, and we're much about the same ourselves. Mrs. Miller bustled about the house and soon lighted a blazing fire. And then she ran next door to see if her children, whom she had left with a little servant girl, were all right and she brought back with her some cold meat for our breakfast. We sat down on a stool before the fire with the child on my knee. She seemed to be about two years old, a strong, healthy little thing. She had stopped crying now and did not seem to be afraid of me. But whenever any of the others came near, she hid her face in my shoulder. Mrs. Miller brought her a basin of milk and, and bread, and she let me feed her. She seemed very weary and sleepy, as if she could hardly keep her eyes open. Poor wee lassie, said my grandfather. I expect they pulled her out of bed to bring her on deck. Won't you put her to bed? Yes, said Mrs. Miller. I'll put her in Polly's bed. She'll sleep there quite nice, she will. 
but the child clung to me and cried so loudly when Mrs. Mellor tried to take her that my grandfather said, I wouldn't take her away, poor motherless lamb. She takes kindly to Alec. Let her bide here. So we made up a little bed for her on the sofa, and Mrs. Mellor brought one of the little Polly's nightgowns and undressed and washed her and put her to bed. The child was still very shy of all of them but me. She seemed to have taken to me from the first, and when she was put into her little bed, she held out her little hand to me and said, Handy? Tippy's handy? What does she say? Bless her, said Mrs. Miller, for it was almost the first time the child had spoken. She wants me to hold her little hand, I said. Tippy's little hand. Tippy must be her name. I never heard of such a name, said Mrs. Miller. Tippy, did you say, what do you call you, darling? She said to the child. But the little blue eyes were closing wearily, and very soon the child was asleep. I still held that tiny hand in mine as I sat beside her. I was afraid of waking her by putting it down. I wonder who she had said Mrs. Miller in a whisper as she folded up her little clothes. She has beautiful things on, to be sure. She's been taking good care of, anyhow. Stop. Here's something written on the little petticoat. Can you make it out, Alec? I laid down the little hand very carefully and took the tiny petticoat to the window. Yes, I said. This will be her name. Here's Miller's written on it. Dear me, said Mrs. Miller's. Yes, that will be her name. Dear me, dear me, to think of the poor father and mother at the bottom of the dreadful sea. Just think, if it was our Polly. And this Mrs. Miller cried so much again that she was obliged to go home and finish her cry with her little Polly clasped tightly in her arms. My grandfather was very worn out from all he had done during the night when went upstairs to bed. I sat watching the little sleeping child. I felt as if I could not leave her. She slept very peacefully and quietly. Poor little pet, how little she knows what has happened, I thought, and my tears came fast and fell on the little fat hand which was lying on the pillow. But after a few minutes, I leaned my head against the sofa and fell fast asleep. I had had no sleep that night before and was quite worn out. I was awakened some hours after by someone pulling my hair and a little voice calling in my ear, Up, up, boy, up, up. I looked up and saw a little rudish face looking at me. The merriest, brightest little face you can imagine. Up, boy, please, she said, again in a coaxing voice. So I lifted up my head, and she climbed out of her little bed on the sofa on my knee. Put shoes on, boy, she said, holding out her little bare toes. I put on her shoes and stockings, and then Mrs. Mellor came over and addressed her. It was a lovely afternoon. The storm had ceased while we had been asleep, and the sun was shining brightly. I got the dinner ready, and the child watched me and ran backward and forward, up and down the kitchen. She seemed quite at home now and very happy. My grandfather was still asleep, so I did not wake him up. Mrs. Miller brought in some broth she had made for the child, and we dined together. I wanted to feed her, as I had done the night before, but she said, Tempe, have poon, please, and she took the spoon from me and fed herself so prettily I could not help watching her. God bless her, poor little thing, said Mrs. Miller. God bless you, said the child. The words were evidently familiar to her. She must have heard her mother say so, said Mrs. Miller in a choking voice. When we finished dinner, the child slipped down from the stool and ran to the sofa. Here she found my grandfather's hat, which she put on her head, and my scarf, which she hung around her neck. And then she marched to the door and said, Ta-da-ta-ta, ta-da-ta-ta, Tempe, go ta-da. Take her out a bit, Alex, said Mrs. Miller. Stop a minute, though. I'll fetch Polly's hood. So, to her great delight, she dressed her up in Polly's hood and put a warm shawl around her, and I took her out. 
Oh, how she ran and jumped and played in the garden. I never saw such a merry little thing. And then she was picking up stones, and now she was gathering daisies. Day Daisies, she called them. Now she's running down the path and calling me to catch her. She was never still a single moment after the storm. Every now and then, as I was playing with her, I looked across the sea to the Ainsley Craig. The sea had not gone down much, though the wind had ceased, and I saw the waves still dashing wildly upon the rocks. And I thought of what lay beneath them, of the shattered ship and of the child's mother. Oh, if she only knew, I thought, as I listened to her merry laugh, which made me more ready to cry than her tears had done. Next time we'll read Chapter 5, The Unclaimed Sunbeam. We'll find out what happens. Well, I hope that you will have a beautiful, blessed new year. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.